And Pharisees came up to him, Jesus, and tested him by asking, Is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? He answered, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female and said, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. They said to him, Why then did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and to send her away? He said to them, because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives, but from the beginning it was not so. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. The disciples said to him, if such is the case of a man with his wife, it is better not to marry. But he said to them, not everyone can receive this saying, but only those to whom it is given. For there are eunuchs who have been so from birth, there are eunuchs who have been made eunuchs by men, and there are eunuchs who have made themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. Let the one who is able to receive this receive it. In 1970, uh, Governor Ronald Reagan, the divorced former actor, signed legislation that made California the first state in the United States to allow no-fault divorce. It's hard to imagine now, but there was a time in which to get a divorce, you had to have cause. You had to make a case for why your divorce was legitimate. And generally, you had to show that your spouse was at fault for harming the marriage. Soon, similar laws swept the nation. Divorce rates predictably skyrocketed. In 2010, New York, of all places, New York became the last state to allow no-fault divorce. Today, in 17 states, plus the District of Columbia, you must file a no-fault divorce if you want a divorce. There is no option for an at-fault divorce. And while it's difficult to know the exact divorce rate, after all, if someone has been married for six months, do you do you count that as a couple that hasn't been, that hasn't been divorced, that has been successfully married? Uh, or, or should you measure them at an arbitrary date in the future? Or do you only look at a rolling average of all the people who've died and whether they got divorced? So it's really difficult to calculate the divorce rate. But it's generally assumed to be somewhere between 40 and 50%. That's astronomical. It gets worse. Second and third marriages have higher divorce rates. An article in Psychology Today pointed to research that showed that nearly two-thirds of second marriages and nearly three-fourths of third marriages end in divorce. What do we do with that? Well, we are in a series, as most of you are aware, uh, entitled Sex, Gender, and the Gospel. Um, we looked at three foundational passages to kind of investigate uh, what the Bible has to say broadly on the subject. We're not answering every possible question in this realm. That would be very long. Um, but we looked at three foundational passages, Genesis 1, Genesis 2, Genesis 3. And now we're in a part where we're, we're looking at four 
somewhat controversial passages, sometimes controversial passages from the New Testament um, about the relationships between men and women and how we should understand them. We're looking at two that involve marriage and two that will involve church life. And so this morning, we are in Matthew 19. It's controversial. It was controversial when Jesus spoke these words. But I think the central idea that Matthew wants to get across to us by recording this conversation Jesus had is that because marriage is a creation of God, it stands or falls on His terms, not ours. Marriage is a creation of God and it stands or falls on His terms. This passage unfolds in three questions and responses, three interlocutions, if you want to fancy word, and I like fancy words now and then, so we're going to break this down into its three interlocutions. The first one takes place in, in verses three to six. Uh, some Pharisees, Matthew is not specific, it's just an ad hoc group that come to him with a question, but we'll note that they approach Jesus with the rationale of testing him. That's a familiar trope in the Gospels. Uh, and it's a familiar trope in our culture too, even today when we're skeptical of a public figure, uh, if we go to a town hall or other public forum, uh, especially on a college campus, uh, and, and some speaker, she's speaking or he's speaking, and we can imagine somebody, maybe ourselves, asking a question to try to trap the person. Sometimes we might do it to expose a flaw in the speaker's reasoning. But if you've seen these, uh, especially on a college campus, they're often more interested not in exposing a flaw in their reasoning, but in discrediting the person. Discrediting the person rather than the idea. And that is what Jesus' opponents often did. And it seems to be what they're doing here. The question is, is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? And we might ask, how is that a test? Well, even among the Pharisees, there was a range of opinions on this subject. In Jewish culture of the day, a woman could generally not divorce her husband. That's, that's important. So if the passage is speaking about a man divorcing his wife, and if, if I speak in that person of a man divorcing his wife, it's because that was the, the culture of the time. Jewish culture did not allow for a woman to divorce her husband. Things are different today. Um, and, and so in that sense, the words apply both directions. But in Jewish culture, the most you could hope for if you were a woman, and this was very rare, you could maybe petition a Jewish court to force the husband to divorce you. Does that make sense? Like you have a really, really bad marriage, you really doubt, the, court will, the Jewish court would tell the husband you have to divorce her. But the wife can't do it her own, on her own. So, and that's why this whole questioning of Jesus is phrased from the man's perspective. So on one hand, no matter, because of all the different opinions that were out there on this subject about when you could divorce somebody and under what circumstances you could divorce somebody, no matter what Jesus said, he was going to consolidate a degree of opposition. They were asking him his opinion on a controversial topic of public interest. Ask any politician a question like that today and they'll try to artfully dodge it because they know that no matter how they answer, once they're on record, 10% of the people will be impressed and 90% of the people will hate them, right? So you can watch them dodge all day long on CNN and Fox News. 
And I've read some contradictory statements about the commonness of divorce among first century Jews. By some accounts, it was rather rare. By other accounts, it might have been an open scandal. And, and those two might both be true. Um, it, it might have been more of an open scandal among, say, the upper class, the more well-off, um, and, and may have been more rare among the working class. But it was a thing. And those who promoted divorce did so for one of two reasons. One school of thought said men can only divorce their wives for some limited, serious situations. And the other major school of thought, perhaps the more popular school of thought, said a man could divorce his wife for any reason he wanted. Divorce could be costly, though, and that, that seems to have kept it off the table a lot because it involved giving back the dowry, giving back the bridal price, or at least some sort of compensation to the wife, unless she deserved it for some reason that they could come up with. Follow? So you wouldn't, divorce wouldn't have been as easy as it is today, even among the school of thinkers who said you could divorce for any reason, because it's going to be financially costly in a way that even that our court system can't understand today. You have to give back a bridal price, which could be very steep. Listen, though, to this passage from the Mishnah, which is a, a collection of rabbinical insight on the Old Testament law. Listen how they reasoned the circumstances when a divorce payment did not need to be made. It's kind of broad, I think. These are... Uh, those who can put away without the divorce payment. A wife that transgresses the law of Moses and Jewish custom. What conduct transgresses the law of Moses? If she gives her husband untithed food or has connection with him in her uncleanness or does not set apart the dough offering. And what conduct is such that transgresses Jewish custom? If she goes out with her hair unbound, or spins in the street, or speaks with any man. Also, if she is a scolding woman. And who is deemed a scolding woman? Whoever speaks inside her house so that her neighbors hear her voice. Don't spin in the street. I tried to get some people to tell me who was the most likely woman in our congregation to spin in the street, and no one would give me a straight answer. So I really wanted to pick on someone today, but no one, no one wanted to give me something. So um, I have some thoughts, though. So. Um, needless to say, many husbands found it possible to divorce their wives with very little consequence themselves. They spin in the street. You don't have to give up the bridal price. No cost. Whether or not the men exercised this right, they certainly enjoyed the comfort and the security of knowing they had this right. Knowing you could get out of a marriage that didn't suit you anymore was a nice thing to have in your back pocket. So these Pharisees are coming at Jesus with a question about divorce for any reason. And what they don't mean, because it's a little bit strange in English, but what they don't mean is, hey, Jesus, tell us the reasons when we can get divorced. What they mean is more like, is it really true that we can get a divorce for any reason we want? For instance, can we get a divorce, Jesus, if she... Spins in a circle? And Jesus' answer is a lot like many of Jesus' answers to his critics. He responds in a way that entirely resets the discussion. 
rather than come down on one side or another, he reframes the debate to something more substantial and weighty. First he says, have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? Here's what he's doing. He's going back to the beginning. In fact, despite the lack of quotation marks in most Bibles, this is a partial direct quote from Genesis 1, verse 27. And then Jesus makes another quotation. This one usually is in quotation marks. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh, which is Genesis 2, 24. So Jesus takes two facts of the Bible, and he's going to make a logical inference from them, which he puts forward as his answer. So they are no longer two but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. We need to appreciate Jesus' point here. Don't miss this. Four things we can take away from Jesus' logic here. Uh, three of them are not so much about the topic at hand, but just three things about Jesus' reasoning that we need to be noting and help us to understand how Jesus put together the Bible, how Jesus understood the Old Testament. First, he's going back to the beginning, the earliest pages of the Bible, without any coincidence. This is why we started this series in those passages. Jesus thought that understanding the relationships between marriage and sex and gender went back to creation, so it's important that we understand that connection as well. Second, he's linking Genesis 1 to Genesis 2. He says that therefore, that therefore in Genesis 2.24, as in part an inference to the creation of humanity in 127. So Jesus did not read a division at the chapter break between Genesis 1 and Genesis 2. And that's important for a lot of issues unrelated to this series, so just kind of file that away in your Bible study notes. And third, in linking these two passages, we see that Jesus understood the marriage relationship as part of the reason why God made us male and female. In other words, the fact that we exist as male and female is because God intended marriage to be a thing. God set human culture in motion with two genders because he wanted the two genders to come together in marriages. If God didn't have marriage in mind, he would have made us all the same gender. Fourth, and this directly impacts our understanding of the text, Jesus understood that God made the two into one. That might be obvious to you, it might not, but I, I don't think the significance really hits us. It points us to a reality of marriage that is both, on one hand, human, and on another hand, divine. On the human level, the marriage is entered into with the commitment to take the spouse as one's own. But on the divine level, Jesus is saying that when a man and a woman come together as one flesh, which is reflected symbolically in the, the sex act, but also in the beauty of children, there is something very unnatural happening also. God is spiritually knitting the two together as one flesh in a way that the eye doesn't see. And so it seems like what Jesus is implying here is that behind every true human marriage is a divine knitting of souls. And that's amazing because marriage was given to all human beings before the fall. So even when people don't properly recognize God's hand at work, say a Hindu marriage in India, an atheist marriage in Sweden, an Islamic marriage in Saudi Arabia, if a man and a woman are joined in marriage, 
God is knitting their souls together as one. So do you see what Jesus is doing here? He, he changes the debate. He effectively is saying, why are you so worried about when and how you can get divorced? God's design is for marriage, not divorce. So don't do it. And although the circumstances were quite different, I imagine Jesus' words hit the Pharisees the same way they would hit a typical American in 2018. They fell like a ton of bricks. Which leads us to our second interlocution. The second exchange takes place when Pharisees pushed back on us. They said to him, why then did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and to send her away? Now, what they're referring to is Deuteronomy 24, verses 1 through 4, which is the passage that Grace read for us this morning. When a man takes a wife and marries her, if then she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some indecency in her, and he writes her a significant certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house, and she departs out of his house, and so forth. Now, if you're reading carefully, you'll note that when the Pharisees say what the Pharisees say about Moses commanding a man to give his wife a certificate of divorce is a pretty generous reading to be charitable. It's possible that some of these ancient Pharisees were reading the text in such a way that if a woman has some indecency, a man was obligated to remove her from his house, obligated to divorce her. But that's hardly the plain meaning of the passage and Jesus pounces on it he said to them because of your hardness of heart Moses allowed you to divorce your wives but from the beginning it was not so now, this is a retort from the ages if you allow it to sink in first notice Jesus subtle correction of their language Moses allowed or permitted divorce he never commanded it guys and why was it allowed Jesus' response would have cut the Pharisees deeply. When he speaks of hardness of heart, he is referring to an idea in the Bible that refers not to being unfeeling or uncaring in the emotional sphere, but something much deeper. In the human body, the heart is connected to the nervous system by the sympathetic nerves, a portion of the spinal cord sends a chemical message to the sinoatrial node of the human heart. The reception of this message causes the sinoatrial node to generate an electrical impulse that travels through the right atrium, then the left atrium, causing each to contract and force blood into the ventricles. The signal then travels to the atrioventricular node, which actually slows the signal down the ventricles need to contract as well, but not until the atria are done contracting. So it slows it down just enough to let the atria finish contracting. And then the signal travels to what I think is uh, the hes purkinje network, which causes the ventricles to contract and send blood to the lungs and body. All that goes on every time your heart beats. 
and a condition called restrictive cardiomyopathy, the heart muscle stiffens and becomes rigid so that when the sinoatrial node generates that electrical impulse, the heart's response begins to deteriorate and untreated, the hard heart might cease to respond at all. Heart failure and death set in. What the Bible describes as a sort of spiritual cardiomyopathy, wherein our spiritual hearts become so hardened that we are unable to respond to the promptings of God. Rather than be in rhythm with His divine stimulation, our hearts are unable to take in the spiritual good we need for true life. And so a spiritual heart failure sets in and we die in our sins. In short, Jesus said, God made provision in His law for Israel so that when unfaithful, spiritually dead men tried to divorce their wives, there would be some level of protection for their wives. And in fact, Jesus intones, your interest in divorce only demonstrates that you Pharisees are spiritually dead. You're dead in your sins, you're apart from God, and frankly, don't even know what you're talking about. From the beginning, it was not so. Now, Jesus has now just reframed the debate. But more than that, as he often does, he puts the spotlight on the Pharisees' own heart. He has directed it right on them. One thing we can say about Jesus is that he shines a spotlight on our hearts. You can't honestly deal with Jesus and come away unscathed. When you encounter Jesus, you will see just how ugly and how vile and perverse your heart is. And what you do with that is up to you. For some people, it means to hide and turn away, thinking that if they ignore Jesus, he won't find them. Others may be tempted to get mad. It's funny how that is. It's funny how we sometimes get mad at people, not because they did anything wrong, but because they reveal how wrong we are. It's like getting mad at your friend who points out the ketchup on your shirt. She didn't put the ketchup on your shirt. She just, you know, you're sloppy rear and manage that for yourself, but you're mad at her for caring enough to tell you. It's like when you, when you play a sport competitively or, uh, or some other competitive activity you're engaged in, there's always that one team that always gets you, right? There's that one team that always seems to, to have your number and you just can't get past them for whatever reason. And you hate them. You hate them. Why? for being good, they don't care about you. They, you're the team that they, don't, they forget about on their schedule, right? They're just trying to be the best they can, but because their strength reveals your weakness, you hate them and you get mad. And maybe that's how you are toward Jesus. But there's another response that some people have found that's, that's much more effective. It's to recognize that when Jesus reveals your weakness, it's only so that you can rely on His strength where he reveals your imperfections and your tarnished soul, he offers his perfection, an unblemished soul. He accomplished all. He left nothing undone. He was not found wanting. So that when he offered his life on the cross and rose again to new life, all the ways you have come up short, all the ways that you have revealed your hard-heartedness in a world gone wrong are wiped away by his work on your behalf. 
in turning to Jesus, you no longer need to be anxious about the ways that you've come up short, the ways you have stained your shirt, because He lives to make you beautiful in Him. That is good news. But Jesus isn't done. After explaining to these faithless Pharisees what Moses meant, he flips the script. So that's what Moses said, but I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. Jesus now goes beyond anything they asked for. They never asked Jesus about remarriage. Remarriage was assumed in Jesus' culture. The question of the day was, was, when is divorce legitimate? But once a man did divorce his wife, even if he divorced her for bad reason, it was just assumed you could get remarried. Jesus says that remarriage after divorce is adultery. Why? Jesus doesn't fully explain, but his reasoning up to this point gives us the direction of his thinking. Since God is the one that ultimately joins the two together, it's not man's to dissolve, but God's. So once you file the legal paperwork for a divorce, whether the first century version or the 21st century Ohioan version, you still remain in a one flesh relationship with that spouse. Your soul's remain knit together spiritually. And so engaging in a new sexual relationship with a new wife or a new husband is really the sin of adultery in the most literal sense. It's sexual relations outside of and against a person's existing marriage. Jesus offers an exception. And that's actually a bit strange. Because up to this point, he seems to be absolute about divorce. Only God can dissolve a marriage. And generally, that happens when God takes one of the two individuals' lives. But here, Jesus makes an exception for sexual immorality. What does he mean? Well, the word Jesus uses is porneia. It's where we get words like pornography and things like that. It was a general term for any sort of sexual activity outside the bounds of a one-man, one-woman marriage relationship. It was more than just adultery. It would have included adultery, but it was more than that. If Jesus had just meant adultery, he could have used a different word for that. So that's the one exception Jesus gives us. But why is there an exception at all if God has already united them as one flesh? Well, here we have to be cautious because the Bible doesn't say clearly. But I think the implication must be that if a man divorces his wife on the grounds of porneia, God must spiritually dissolve the union. That must be what is going on. The act of porneia so violates the very nature of the marriage that God will countenance dissolving it. So just as when a man and woman decide to get married by the custom of their culture, God spiritually binds them as one, 
when a man and a woman divorce because of sexual immorality, according to the custom of their culture, God spiritually disunites them. Now, exception or not, these are strong words. But is it any wonder then that in the first centuries of Christianity, divorce, with this one exception, was almost universally prohibited. Church members who divorced without such justification were routinely excommunicated. And make no mistake, they weren't doing this because that was what they were brought up in. That wasn't what their cultural expectation was. That was far more stringent than Jewish culture at the time and way more, culture, uh, way more strict than Greco-Roman culture in which the church was reared into adulthood. There was not a high view of marriage in the church because of the culture they lived in or the time period they lived in. Not at all. They held a high view of marriage in spite of their culture. And I imagine those Christians just seemed weird. Today, I'm afraid, we look typical. Typically American. With typically high divorce rates. If, as we saw last week, that marriage is a proclamation of the gospel. Marriage in the joyful submission of the wife and the tender, loving leadership of the husband is supposed to paint a picture of how Jesus cares for his people and how they serve him. Well, if that's true, then is it any wonder that the world has a hard time believing in a Jesus who will hold them fast? He will hold me fast. You better not bank on it if you're talking about the typical American male, Christian or otherwise. If we're going to preach a better word to a dying world, then brothers and sisters, we must, except in the most vile cases, purge divorce from our ranks. We must fight for marriages. Not just our own, but each other's. That's for all of us, whether we hope to someday be married, whether we've been married whether we are single now or married now, we need to fight for each other's marriages because the witness of the gospel of Jesus Christ depends on it. I want to talk about that exception, though. Because there's the danger of becoming a Pharisee here. And by that, I don't mean being too strict. I mean turning a permission into a command. See, Jesus gives us an exception for the case of sexual immorality, but he does not command anyone to get a divorce because of sexual immorality. In fact, let me suggest that the normal course for a Christian would be the opposite. While it may be the case that it is acceptable to get a divorce, that doesn't mean that it's best to get a divorce. One biblical scholar uses the analogy uh, that divorce ought to be considered like amputating an arm or a leg. It's only used in the most extreme cases. And even then, you're, 
you should probably have second thoughts about whether or not it's the best course of action. You're going to do everything you can to save that appendage before you decide there's no other way to go forward. Here's the rubric I try to use in my own thinking about my own marriage. I hope I never have to use it. But Jesus holds me fast as we sang. And you know what? Jesus holds me fast when I commit porneia against Him. Even when I am unfaithful to Him. And I sin, He holds me fast. He stays by me. And He loves me. And He strengthens me. Even when I am rebellious and petulant. Still He loves me. Still He stays. And so if I am to imitate Christ, what is it my wife could ever do to me that would cause me to divorce her? I hope I never have to test that doctrine. But should I ever have to test that doctrine, I want to be as faithful to my wife as Christ is to me. He's been very faithful. Fight for your marriage. Fight for marriages that aren't yours. Fight for the gospel. Well, the Pharisees must have been silenced because they fade from the scene at this point. But there's one last interlocution, one last exchange of parties at this time between Jesus and his disciples. His disciples, maybe like us, are moved by the strictness of Jesus' teaching. And they said to him, If such is the case of a man with his wife, it is better not to marry. See, remember what I said earlier. The, the right to a divorce was taken for granted by a Jewish man at the time. It was an escape clause. If divorce is absolutely off the table... If getting married really means, really means to death do us part, and there's no way out of things if they go south, then the disciples, some of whom were married at this point, it would seem, can only reason, perhaps it's better not to get married at all. Perhaps they were thinking about Proverbs 25, 4. It's better to live in a corner of the housetop than a house shared with a quarrelsome wife. The hope was that a quarrelsome wife could be dealt with by divorce before the guy ever needs to go to the corner of the roof. If that's off the table, then I'm facing a lifetime without a woman or I'm facing a lifetime with a spot on the roof. And maybe the disciples are thinking, I can go without a woman. We might expect Jesus to offer some words of encouragement here, but he goes a different direction entirely. But he says to them, not everyone can receive this saying, but only those to whom it is given. Jesus takes them at their word. And he says, look, we all know that not everyone can stay celibate just because marriage is hard. It is hard. But that doesn't mean you shouldn't get married, guys. It's a good gift of God. It's designed to grow you in holiness and godliness. But it is hard. And once you enter it, it's till death do you part. At the same time, Jesus is commending the fact that some people can accept this. 
he gives three categories. Eunuchs from birth. This would be people who, for some reason or another, going back to their time in the womb, are unable to have intercourse. Probably congenital reasons. Then there are those made eunuchs by man. Jesus was probably thinking mainly about court officials in the ancient world who were castrated for their jobs. It was a fun time to be alive. But it probably also refers to individuals who, due to activities and tragedies produced by human beings, were no longer able to have intercourse. And finally, there are those who are eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven, not people as some dude centuries later thought, oh, maybe to really serve Jesus, I have to cut it off. No, that's not what Jesus is saying, but he's saying there are people who choose a life of singleness though they are able to marry and are free to marry in order to better serve God. Now, I want to be clear about what this means and what it doesn't mean. Jesus is not describing a special class of Christians like Roman Catholic priests who are holier because they remain single. Jesus doesn't say that. He doesn't say that celibacy is required for church leadership. The Bible never says that. But there are some for whom it truly is better not to marry. And they voluntarily make that decision for the kingdom. Paul, the Apostle Paul, will later argue in, in 1 Corinthians that some are better off to be married and others are better off for the kingdom staying single. single. Now, at this day and time, marriage would have almost been taken for granted. You got married. It's what you did. Period. So the idea of voluntarily staying single would have been pretty radical. But in our culture, singleness is a choice people take for granted and that they take for the freedom of it. It's a strange turn of events in, in really the whole history, at least of the Western world. It's weird. Um, we have people, frankly, many people who want to be married but aren't. And yet, they aren't married out of choice. They choose singleness because we've become so consumeristic about marriage that we have become choosy about finding a mate. You know, two or three hundred years ago, you didn't get to be all that choosy about your mate unless you were, you know, maybe in high society. You know, but I don't know if that was what we want to aspire to. But we are highly particular. You talk to any guy, I, I, I've talked to a lot of guys about you know, what they're looking for in a woman. You know, it's always a laundry list. I don't have as many conversations with women uh, about what kind of guys they're looking for, but I get the sense that it's similar. They have these really long, particular lists. We don't say that just to tell anyone to just get married to anyone. But it is interesting how things have, have changed. And so it, it's a little different context than Jesus is speaking into. Of course, our culture doesn't really celebrate celibate singleness. That's a rare bird. Our culture loves singleness, but not celibate singleness. But here's what Jesus says to singles. Jesus says, choose celibate singleness for the sake of of the kingdom. Don't choose it for your career. 
Don't choose it for your education. Don't choose it for advancement. Don't choose it because you're too choosy, too particular. Don't choose it because you're too selfish. Don't choose it for any such reason. Choose it for the sake of the kingdom. Choose it because marriage involves time commitments that you'd rather make not for marriage, but to have more time to disciple other women. Choose it because marriage involves pain, and you'd rather take the pain of counseling other church members through their trials. Choose it because a family can be a financially costly thing, and you'd rather devote more of your money to the gospel work of your local church. If you're a Christian and you're single, here's my counsel. Since we don't live in the first century, and everyone is not married by their early 20s, we have some different realities we're dealing with. Whether because you're young, or because you haven't found someone yet, or because they haven't asked you yet, or because it's already been a long time and you're wondering if you'll ever find someone, regardless of the situation you find yourself in, choose your singleness. And choose it for God's glory. What I, what I mean is that in any situation, we still have the freedom to choose our approach to it. If we lose a job, we can choose to be despondent of our circumstances and scared for the future, or we can be choosing to be hopeful about what lies ahead and trusting in the God who holds our future. If we win the lottery, and I hope you don't play the lottery, you can choose to be bitter about all the people who are going to ask you for handouts when you win, or you can celebrate the influx of cash like a normal person. If you're single, you can choose to let your singleness be about your pursuit of a career, you can choose to let your singleness be about the gospel. You can choose to let your singleness be a source of pain, or you can let your singleness be a source of gospel joy. You can choose to let your singleness be lonesome, or you can choose to spend your freedom building up other Christians for the sake of the gospel. Those are real choices you have. You are single. How you use that singleness is your choice. Choose your singleness for the glory of God. And the complementary principle, of course, is choose your marriage for the glory of God. Anytime we wrestle with a, a passage like this, there are a lot of questions, and we certainly can't get into them all. But I, I want to say something about three different classes of, of individuals who might hear this message. What if you're divorced? So it's already happened. It's in the past. What do you do? I can't heed Matthew 19 because that passed me a few years ago. Well, I can't hope to cover every possible situation, but let's give some, some general parameters. First, assuming your divorce was not for biblical reasons, because then hopefully you're not too conflicted about it. Even still, even still, divorce is not the unpardonable sin. Jesus' blood can forgive that mistake too. And second, forgiven doesn't mean no consequences. 
If Jesus has forgiven your divorce because you've become a follower of Jesus through faith and repentance, you still must grapple with the reality that God spiritually joined you to that person. In many cases, that may mean you need to seek a restoration of that marriage. And that could be a long and slow and painful process, but it might be what God is requiring of you. In fact, arguably, that's exactly what repentance looks like. In some circumstances, that window may have entirely passed. But there may be endeavors that you need to make to make amends and to patch wounds and to remedy things that you did that were hurtful. What if you're remarried? Didn't Jesus just say that if you remarry after a divorce, it's adultery? So what do you do then? Well, I don't think your new marriage is illegitimate. It is a legitimate marriage. It just happens to be born out of sinful choices. You can't go back to your first spouse anyways. That would be a violation of God's law in Deuteronomy 24. But you should be mournful. Repentance will look like, probably look like something uh, like ruining the mistakes you made in your folly. And it will perhaps mean trying to make amends with your ex-spouse in any way you can. You won't go back to him or her in marriage, but to the extent that you hurt them in the ending of your marriage, there are probably some accounts that need to be settled. The one that I, I hope that this is not the case, and I hope that it's not the case to anyone in here going forward, but what do you do if your spouse files for divorce? And brother or sister, I am so sorry. Assuming, though, that you have not given your spouse legitimate grounds, you haven't been sexually immoral in some way, fight for your marriage. You can't fight forever in this country. That's unfortunate, but it's true. Since every state has no-fault divorce, anyone can file for divorce for any reason at all, and eventually the divorce will go through if the spouse is persistent. But while you can fight legally, you can fight it in other ways too. You can fight spiritually. You love harder, you pray harder. You enlist your church and you speak the gospel to each other and you speak the gospel to your spouse harder. I'm not saying you'll prevent it. But I am saying the fight is worth it. Because marriage is worth it. It's a picture of the gospel. And Jesus fights for us. But man, if that's you... Let me know. I mean, let me know. If you're a visitor and that's you, let me know. I mean, I want to pray for you. And if that's anyone here, it's part of this church. If that ever happens, don't, don't lag on it. Get your church involved. We've got work to do. So in these three interlocutions, these, these three back and forth between Jesus 
and first the Pharisees and then his disciples, we see a radically Christian approach to divorce and remarriage. But because marriage is a creation of God, it stands or falls on his terms. Doubtless, many of us are harboring some what-ifs and some what-abouts. What if this happens? What about that situation over there? Well, let me suggest a couple things. Um, first, come to one of our Tuesday night growth groups. There's two of them, one on the west side, one right here. Uh, there will be some more space to work through those sorts of specific discussions in a way, because I could give you 100 different cases and we'd be here till 5 p.m. Um, that's not useful. Second, don't let your what-ifs and your what-abouts sidetrack you from the most important issue. God made marriage, and he hates divorce. And those who are called by his name need to fight for marriages. Let's pray. God, I pray that we would be different than the world around us. May the American church, but Gateway Church downtown Cleveland, may this little local iteration of the worldwide church bought by the blood of Jesus Christ be a living witness to the gospel through strong marriages, through marriages that are committed to maintaining every bit of unity that God has knit together in His eyes. May we be a people that fight for marriage. May the world see the couples at Gateway downtown and say, they aren't perfect, but they have something different. May this city see the singles at Gateway Downtown and may they say they aren't perfect, but they hunger and thirst for something different. Who protects their friends' marriages like that? May they see our singles and say, they're not perfect. But they don't use their singleness to party. They don't use their singleness to have a great time. They don't use their singleness to be unencumbered. I don't, I don't get it, but they use their singleness for this Jesus guy, and I don't understand it. Confuse this city, God, by the witness of this church. And may we be bold to end their confusion with the proclamation of the good news of Jesus Christ who loves his church so much that he died for it and holds her so tight that she will never be let go. And may every husband and every wife do as their Savior has done. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.